Welcome to the JMD podcast, your fortnightly foray into the world of inherited metabolic disease. In every episode, we welcome journal authors to discuss their recent publications, trying to put back in some of the colour that may have been lost in the edit. There's an extensive back catalogue with over 100 episodes, so be sure to check that out. And if you are enjoying the podcast, please like or leave a review, but not before listening to this latest episode on movement disorders and mRNA therapy in arginosacinic aciduria. Hello there. Now, at the start of 2024, I'm delighted to return to one of the most popular groups of disorders, or at least as far as the podcast is concerned, the urea cycle defects. And we're discussing the recent paper, The Incidence of Movement Disorder Increases with Age and Contrast with Subtle and Limited Neuroimaging Abnormalities in Arginosacinic Aciduria. And I'm delighted to welcome the first and last authors, the alpha and omega, if you will, Dr. Sanam Garang and Dr. Julian Barato, both at the Institute of Child Health at UCL. And since our guests are experts in the field. And because it's mentioned in this paper too, we'll also take the opportunity to discuss another recent paper of theirs, which was just published in Science Translational Medicine. mRNA therapy restores urogenesis and corrects glutathione metabolism in arginosacinic aciduria. Uh, Sonam and Julian, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. So we've talked a lot about urea cycle disorders in general terms, and that often places an increased emphasis on OTC deficiency. We're talking about arginosacinic aciduria today. So what do our listeners need to know about that one? Um, so yeah, I'm happy to take that question. So arginosacinic aciduria, I'll refer to it as ASA because it's a mouthful. Even though it's not as well known as OTC deficiency, it is the second most common urea cycle disorder. It accounts for about 16% of the UCD cases. It's thought to be about one in 100,000 live births, and it's quite common in Middle East population. So in terms of phenotype, like other urea cycle disorders, the ASA patients uh, have hypermonemia, but at the same time, they also have this systemic phenotype. So they have this chronic neurological defect, liver disease, gastrointestinal problems. Some patients have arterial hypertension. So you could kind of view this as a multi-organ disease as well. But the interesting aspect is that at least a lot of the neurological defects that we see in the patients, they don't always necessarily correlate with hyperammonemia. So not all patients have hyperammonemia, but they could have the neurological defect. So that's quite an interesting aspect with the disease. And finally, in terms of therapy, there isn't necessarily a cure at the moment. It's more to control the symptoms of the disease. So they have ammonia scavengers to control the ammonia levels, arginine supplementation, low protein diets. And in severe cases, they could have liver transplantation as well. But of course, that comes with its own complications. But there was a very promising study that was presented in SSIM two years ago by a group in Rome, where they did show that patients that receive liver transplantation early on in life seem to have a sustained neurological benefit. So that's quite a promising study there as well. You've mentioned the neurological component and that seems to be you know, not correlating with the hyperammonemic episodes. This paper obviously looks at movement disorders, which I presume is secondary to that neurological involvement. Why are they such a big deal for this group of patients? So they, we have been looking at the phenotype of these patients for some time now, and we reviewed that in the Journal of Inherited Metabolic Diseases in 2017. 
and we realized that the neurological phenotype had a combination of developmental delay, epilepsy, and as well motor disorders. So we reviewed in detail the epilepsy component in a large study published in 2023 in Epilepsia, and we were really interested to have a better characterization of this feature of motor disorders in this population of patients with ASA because it's very poorly described. And when we discuss with uh, adult physicians, with adult patients with ASA, we realize that maybe more than hyperammonemia sometimes, this motor disorder is very much impacting their daily life with some difficulties in uh, writing, dressing themselves, feeding themselves. Uh, essentially what they are complaining is more what we call an intentional tremor. That's not really a resting tremor as what we see in Parkinson's disease, but very much when they are intentional movements, that's what is uh, impacting the way they can really uh, move and coordinate their gesture. So that's not something we see very often in children, but that's something very much that we see much more in adult patients. And do we know why they get the tremor? So that's something which is very particular to arginosuccinic aciduria compared to other uracycle defects. There was uh, some publications by a group in Israel, led by Professor Ayelet Eretz at the Weizmann Institute of Science a couple of years ago. And she has shown that by downregulating the enzyme arginosuccinate lyase, which is deficient in ASA, in dopaminergic neurons, she was able to reproduce a motor disorder in mice. And the pathophysiological mechanism was linked by the fact that ASL, this enzyme, is linked to arginine production. When you have arginine deficiency, we have low arginine. And arginine is a precursor for nitric oxide synthesis. And when we have low nitric oxide, which is something which is commonly observed in these patients, we have a down regulation of the production of central catecholamines, dopamine and uh, noradrenaline, for example, in these patients. So that's directly linking decreased central catecholamine production and motor disorders. Well, thank you for making that so clear. If we come back to your paper, it's a pretty big cohort. I think 60 patients is what you had, which is a vast number in rare disease. How did you pull together such an impressive group? So we build up on a database which had been set up uh, in the UK some years ago between pediatric and adult centres based between London, Manchester and Birmingham. And we pulled our patients together. So we had patients from the age of six months to more than 50 years. And when you came to look at them, what was it that you found? So we look at different type of uh, symptoms. We look at motor disorders, essentially the tremor. We looked at some symptoms associated with the uh, neurodegeneration, uh, like, for example, abnormal behavior, some abnormal day-night pattern between sleep and awakeness, and some symptoms linked to hypotonia and fatigue. And we realized that this association of symptoms, one or combination of them, were quite frequent in the patients with ASA, around 25%. And we realized that the incidence of these uh, symptoms really started to be seen in the second and third decades of life. So it was something quite progressive, which was not seen in young children, but later on in the natural history of the disease. And we realized as well that when we compare between 
early onset and late onset patients with ASAs, which is really very much linked to the age in which patients will be present with high ammonia levels, there wasn't really any difference in terms of incidence or severity. So it doesn't seem there is any link between these motor disorders symptoms and hyperammonemia, which is something we have seen with other neurological symptoms like developmental delay or epilepsy. There is really a disconnection between the uricycle defect and the neurological disease in this condition, uh, which is linked to a cell autonomous deficiency of ASL, which is causing the disease in the brain itself. What we found as well interesting was that patients who had these symptoms didn't have a higher risk of a learning disability or epilepsy. So I think it's important that physicians are aware that it's not because these patients have these symptoms that they will be more severe overall with other specific symptoms of the neurological disease. As someone who cares for these patients, Julian, you presumably you measure your success as to whether you're preventing hyperammonemic attacks and other things. So assuming you're managing a patient over a long time and they seem to be doing well from that point of view, is there anything else that correlates with the development of these symptoms or is it somewhat removed from um you know, the, your day-to-day management. Does that make sense? Sorry. So you, you've got a stable patient, you've managed to prevent them from having decompensation episodes. You seem to be controlling their epilepsy well. Does it seem to be irrespective of what you're doing that they develop these movement disorders? So our study with this cohort of uh, patients with ASA was purely descriptive. And when we looked at some biomarkers linked to the uracycle defect itself, we couldn't really identify any biomarkers which would correlate with this type of motor disorders. Again, highlighting the disconnection between the uh, uracycle and neurological disease on the other side. So that's why we were interested to consider some neuroimaging in patients, but there are very limited data on this, especially in patients with the motor disorders. So most of the time, brain MRI are done for patients who have epilepsy, for example, or a severe neurological presentation, but uh, we had very limited patients with motor disorders having brain MRI in the cohort we had. And what we specifically looked at in the paper was one patient who was a, a young adult uh, who had uh, this motor disorder with a tremor and had a specific brain MRI sequence called diffusion tensor imaging, which is sort of more research sequence added to the conventional sequences. And when we looked at that with conventional sequences, we couldn't really see any difference in the uh, brain MRI. But when we looked at this diffuse attention imaging sequence or DTI, we could see that there was some differences between this patient and age and sex matched controls. The differences in the microarchitecture of the white matter, in the cellularity of the gray matter, especially close to basal ganglia. So that's just one single case report of one patient. And it's difficult to disentangle completely the role of the neurological disease due to ASL deficiency and as well the potential sequelae or consequences of uh, repeated hyperammonemic episodes in the past. But we thought that was a, an interesting point to raise. And will that be predictive? That's difficult to say, but at least I think that's opened the door to say that it would be an interesting approach to consider this type of new sequences for brain MRI to follow prospectively these patients, because we might find in the future that it might be a way to predict or monitor the changes in basal ganglia, which might be linked to this type of motor disorder, to the symptoms we see in patients. And 
I don't know if you've got enough data to say, but is this imaging that would be useful for prognostication or do we think that you're going to get clinical signs first and then you're going to subsequently develop MRI changes? Yeah, that, that's very early uh, to draw a conclusion like that. I think that's just a single observation. And uh, this is really uh, raising the need for you know further studies to study specifically this point. And was there any other correlation within the imaging and the clinical picture? So there is some changes around the basal ganglia in these patients. And these patients has some motor disorders affecting the control and coordination of the movements. And, you know, these basal ganglia structures are known to be involved in that. And when the professor Eretz looked at the animal model she had developed looking at motor disorders, she was able to find as well some abnormal correlation in the mouse model between movement disorders and the specific structures involved in motor control. So again, that's a single observation that's difficult to raise conclusion, but there may be something. But again, we need uh, more patients. You've started talking about animal models there, and it doesn't get much of a mention in your title, but you do discuss a mouse model for ASA deficiency within your paper. And in almost a throwaway comment, you just mentioned using mRNA therapy to treat their disease. So can we just take a couple of steps back and look at that a little bit more? Where are we at with mRNA therapies in arginosinic acid area? Yeah, I'm quite excited to talk about the mRNA therapy in ASA in our mouse model. So there's been a lot of work done of mRNA therapy in different models of liver-inherited metabolic diseases. At least a lot of preclinical studies have been published. And we've been working with the mRNA therapy in arginosuccinic aciduria in collaboration with Moderna. They've been providing us with their optimized formulations that has mRNA encoding human ASL encapsulated in these lipid nanoparticles. And we've been testing them in our mouse model. Just to mention the mouse model, it is very good in that it recapitulates a lot of the human disease phenotype. So it's a good model to do preclinical work on initially. And at the end of the day, mRNA therapy is a transient therapy. So we first wanted to test how long efficacy of a single injection can last in this model. So we first looked at how well it expresses the ASL protein and how well it affects the biomarkers associated with the disease. And we could see that within 24 hours of administration, there was expression and activity of the ASL protein being detected in the liver. And the biomarkers associated with the disease as well were very well corrected within 24 hours. And this efficacy could last up to at least seven days. That's what we tested. We then performed a survival study in the mice where we injected them at birth and then weekly thereafter, this was again a systemic intravenous injection and remarkably comparing to the normal wild type mice, we could see a complete correction of growth and survival and all the biomarkers associated with the disease were also corrected. So that was Incredible. And just to say that the untreated or the sham treated transgenic mice, they get very sick very quickly and they died within two to three weeks of birth. So it was a remarkable result for us. And we also did some work in collaboration with KCL where we were trying to study the sort of liver pathophysiology more. And this is where we showed that there is a glutathione metabolic dysfunction, which we have seen a bit impatient, but it's certainly recapitulated in the mice. And with the therapy, we also target that in that we correct the glutathione metabolic dysfunction as well. This got published last week in Science Translational Medicine. So there'll be more detailed studies there. 
But I also did want to mention another study that was published last year. It was a group in Vancouver with bio and tech, and they were also looking at ASL mRNA therapy in the same mouse model that we work with. And they also showed improvement in growth and survival of these mice. So in terms of preclinical study, I think we got very promising results. And that's something we hope will be moved forward as well. It's really exciting stuff. And Julian and I spoke about genomic therapies in urea cycle disorders in more general terms. And it seems very clear that there isn't going to be a single winner. We're going to need to use combination mRNA therapy and gene therapy because of the speed of liver turnover. We need to use one as a stopgap before the other becomes more viable. And that's fair to say, isn't it? Yeah, I would certainly say so. I guess uh, whenever I talk about mRNA therapy, the question I'm always asked is, you have to give repeated injections. So how viable do you think it's long term? And I think there's a lot more safety studies coming out from the mRNA therapy. So I still think it's very much a viable option. But as you mentioned, I think combination therapy likely long term with either AAV or even lentiviral gene therapy, that could be the way forward in future. Certainly weekly infusions in the context of things like Pompeii, where we're giving ERT, no one bats an eyelid at the notion of of weekly infusions, I guess. But uh, James, the frequency of uh, administration in mice that we do on a weekly basis might not be the right frequency of injections in humans. So in clinical trials, most of the time we have injections every three weeks or every two weeks, depending on the different type of cohorts of patients. So it's likely that because the metabolism in mice is much quicker, that's not exactly what we might want to do for um, standard of care once we have hopefully one day this type of treatment for patients. We won't know until we start doing it, will we? Um, the paper went into quite some depth regarding the sort of the wider metabolic perturbations seen within this condition. Do those changes have some bearing on your observations around movement disorders? So in fact, the aim of doing this work in this mouse was to try to model this non-recapitulating movement disorder to study better. But the model we have is an ASL deficient mouse, which is hypomorphic, meaning that there is still quite a high residual ASL activity in all cells. And when we did this study, we realized that these animals that we treated with the mRNA therapy to correct the urocycle defects by targeting the liver were able to survive. We couldn't really see any significant difference when we were performing neuroimaging, so brain MRI with this diffusion tensor imaging sequences that we mentioned in the patient. We couldn't really see any difference between uh, wild-type animals with no disease and these uh, mutant mice treated with mRNA. And same for the central catecholamine measurements that we did in the brain. We couldn't really capitulate these findings and we couldn't really see any movement either other as well. So there is another way of doing it, which I mentioned before with this other group in Israel who really knocked down completely the ASL activity only in dopaminergic neurons and managed to do that and recapitulate these findings. But we tried with a different mouse model and couldn't recapitulate that. And I mean, I think this movement disorder is probably linked to a very small subset of dopaminergic neurons. And when we looked at the whole brain metabolism, it doesn't seem to be significantly affected. So, you know, if we compare with inherited deficiencies of catecholamine synthesis, for example, this is quite different. 
So um, I think this is very complementary in terms of work compared to previous work done by other groups. What was interesting is that we did some uh, positron emission tomography, some PET scans, looking at the uptake of uh, radionuclide, which is uh, an equivalent of dopamine, ioflupan, and we couldn't really identify any loss of dopaminergic neurons between the mutant animals and the wild-type ones. And if we link that to findings of other papers in the other mouse model, which showed that there is a partial benefit of nitric oxide therapy in these mice, I think this brings hope for patients, meaning that the consequences of the neurological disease seems to be more linked to a functional deficit rather than a proper neurodegeneration with cell loss. So it may be that if we manage to bring some therapy targeting the brain, we might be able to correct these symptoms and restore these abnormalities. I mean, you mentioned at the beginning that there was work presented that suggesting that the liver transplantation would prevent the neurological phenotype. So I presume you'd be optimistic that with this approach to therapy, by correcting the liver defect, you would ultimately prevent the neurological problem in human subjects. It is a possibility, but it's, it's, it's not 100% sure. So these are still, you know, some early observation from the group of Rome regarding the benefit of liver transplantation on the neurological disease. It might work, but uh, to which extent will that be able to completely correct the neurological disease? It might not be. It might provide some benefits. And I think at the moment, it may be the, the best way of improving the neurological disease. But I think, again, it needs to be worked on on a larger cohorts of patients. And we need to have some longer follow-up to be able to say that it really modified the outcome and to which extent. Because to my simple mind, gene therapy tends to be organ targeted. It's quite hard just to sort of throw it in and hope you get everything. Does this mean that your mRNA therapy is, is liver targeted or you're not presumably giving anything into the CSF? What we're looking to treat is enzyme purely within the liver, I assume. Yes, uh, definitely. The mRNA therapy that we are using at the moment is very much liver targeted. And we are trying to correct the liver dysfunction, at least with the mice studies. Having said that, some of the neurological deficit could still be a secondary effect from the toxic metabolites that build up in the liver. So maybe in correcting the liver dysfunction, we are helping correct some of the secondary deficits that we see. But at the moment, no, we are not necessarily targeting directly into the CSF or into the brain. And would that be something that needs to be done? Uh, that's what kind of studying, I guess, at the moment with the mouse model, uh, how well we are correcting the neurological deficit just by systemic administration targeting the liver. As Julian mentioned before, at least with the parameters that we've tested, we couldn't necessarily tease out any neurological deficits. But again, it might just be that we need to target subsets of neurons in the brain. And in that case, maybe we do need to look into administration routes, perhaps in that case, or try and develop lipid nanoparticles that could target the brain. So that's something we would like to do in future. So you've started talking about future targets there. I'm always keen to ask at the end of the podcast about where we are in the pipeline from mice to people. mRNA therapy, clearly they're exciting. What's coming next? So the next point regarding the mRNA therapy, this is a technology which belongs to Moderna. And I think they are really keen to consider some translation. So they have various programs at the moment, some in clinics for propionic acidemia, methylmalonic acidemia, glycogen storage disease type 1A, 
they are setting up another uh, clinical trial of OTC deficiency. So hopefully, you know, this program might be able to reach the clinic as well soon. From this paper, the information we have really rely on the characterization of this movement disorder approach which is quite different compared to the neurodegeneration that we think of when we think about Parkinson's disease, for example, when we have really a progressive cell loss and different movement disorder with the resting tremor versus here, intentional tremor and no evidence from our mouse study of cell loss. So I think this is a, an important difference here. And uh, these findings, what we have discussed about neuroimaging, what we have been discussing about the uh, mouse studies, trying to maybe have some further work on different gene therapy, which could target the brain specifically. This is all some directions of research that uh, we are considering. And there will be some uh, more work to follow in the coming years regarding these different points. Well, I certainly look forward to hearing more about it. Well, thank you so much for your time. If you'd like to read these papers, please click the link in the podcast description. You can go to our journal webpages and search for neuroimaging and arginosarcinic aciduria, or you can find the mRNA therapy paper by going to the science and translational medicine webpages. I presume, you know, there are other metabolic papers out there, it turns out. Um, Sanam and Julian, thank you you again so much for your time thank you very much thank you and thank you for listening until next time goodbye